open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 17, found on page 91 or 71 in your pew Bible there, Exodus chapter 17. Remember how I said I had to take a couple tests for the ordination thing, wrote a couple sermons? Getting the other one today. Let's read, let's read starting with verse 8 in chapter 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. May we have the ears to hear it, and may God's blessing be added to it. When I was a boy, one of our favorite activities during those long summer months was to get together with all the other kids in our neighborhood and wage war. We were really good at it. We'd arm ourselves with whatever toy plastic guns we had and foam swords, and if we didn't have those, we'd take kickballs and we'd pretend like they were bombs. And we'd form form two giant armies, and across the whole neighborhood, we'd, we'd spend the whole day doing nothing but playing at battle. We'd fight in a fight forts that we'd make, you know, really bad ones. We'd fight in thickets of trees and duck down in bushes, and we had a really good time. And it was kind of strange because there were, of course, no rules or referees. Kids get together and they play, and then they just kind of make up the rules as they go. But there was this, like this un- under- unspoken understanding that if somebody got the drop on you and went like, pew, pew, you're dead, then you were honor-bound to fall down for like 20 seconds or so before he stood back up again. Like real war, right? So, so that was good. But the problem was, kids being kids, not everybody always played fair. And sometimes you'd have those rule breakers that in the heat of the battle would suddenly develop an invincibility shield. And they couldn't be hit. Or, or maybe they would backstab their team and suddenly join the other side because all their friends were over there. Or the worst, most cowardly example of, of, of soldiering was when somebody would duck into their own house and hide behind their mom or dad and say, oh, you can't come in my house. I'm safe. And we would say, man, that is so unfair. And anytime somebody was that unfair, it always really upset us. Yet I can't help but look back on those days and feel like I learned an important life lesson, which was sometimes life isn't fair. Life doesn't always come at you when you're under attack and feel fair. Do you ever notice that? I've had 
So as a pastor, I've had so many people come up and talk to me and say, man, why is all of this happening at once? Can't God space out these bad things so I can, can take one at a time instead of 20 at once? It doesn't feel fair. Often bad news and troubles come piled on top of one another. They leave us feeling strung out. They leave us at the point of near collapse. Maybe you feel like that this morning. That life isn't fair. Even Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for us in John 16 when he tells us outright that in this world, you will have trouble. Thanks, Jesus. Good to hear that. In this world, you will have trouble. But our king knows that this trouble won't seem fair to us, which is why he goes on to saying, take heart, for I have overcome the world. You're going to have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That sustains us. That last part sustains us. And today we're looking at this interesting story of this battle with Amalek in Exodus to see how God sustains his people even in their darkest hour. So we're going to look here in in Exodus 17 as it it follows the the story that we're really familiar with of the crossing of the Red Sea. We all know that story where two million or so Israelites cross and escape the clutches of the Egyptian pharaoh. And they cross over to the other side and they throw a party and they're celebrating. They're like, we're free, we're saved. And they see their salvation. And then what now? The other side wasn't a paradise. They're actually crossing into desolate wilderness, the desert. And they're, they're suddenly finding themselves facing trial after trial after trial. First thing, they don't have any food. They're starting to starve. So what does God do to provide for them? He sends manna and quail for them to eat. But then their thirst sets in. And they're in the middle of the desert. There's no oasis. So God then provides water that, that Moses strikes the rock with his staff. And water comes out of it to provide for them. But then it gets even worse. My wife and I used to watch this show called Survivor Man. Anybody ever watch that show with Les, Les Stroud? And Les Stroud would intentionally, he was a crazy guy, he would strand himself in some of the most unhospitable places on this planet and then show you how he would survive that situation. And one of the things that got drilled into my head Uh, during all those episodes, was that he said, in order of priorities, when you're stranded, when you're in a survival situation, the most important things aren't food. They're not water. It's shelter. The safety of shelter is the single most important thing because that's what's going to keep you alive that first night. You can go without water for a while. You can go without food. But if you freeze to death during your first night or if you're exposed to the elements, chances are you're going to perish pretty quickly. Well, imagine that you're part of two million or so people that have crossed into an open desert. and there's no, there's no trees anywhere around you, and you feel very exposed. You have no walls to hide behind. You have no covered wagons to circle around you. And then suddenly you hear the shouts and the screams, and you turn to see an army coming at you, and there's nowhere to run, no caves to hide in no fortification. You don't have the shelter that you need. Imagine the fear that came out of that moment. The group that was attacking them were the Amalekites. I used to have a a teacher, a Bible teacher in high school, who would get confused with all those. He's like, the 
the, the Malachites and the Jesuits and the Mosquito Bites. And he's like, whatever, you know. They're the ites. But actually, you should know who the Amalekites are because even if you don't recognize the name, I bet you recognize who they're descended from, which is Esau. Jacob and Esau. You remember Esau? The guy who was the older brother got tricked, and suddenly he and Jacob were pretty much at odds for a good long time there. And his descendants became very hostile. They became a a nomadic tribe that would go around and basically beat up people for what they want. And they became very hostile to the people of Israel. They basically became their number one enemy. And when they show up first, this is the first of many appearances of the Amalekites in, in the Old Testament. And when they show up here, they're not there just for a light little skirmish. They're not there to steal the, the water that Israel just got. They're there pretty much to wipe out the nation of Israel. They want to kill them to every last man, woman, and child. This is a survival situation. Yet almost immediately at the beginning of this fight, we see how God sustains his people through this situation. We see that God has this leadership core already in place of Moses, the leader of the people, Aaron, the high priest, and Joshua, the commander of the army. And this leadership swings into action immediately. Joshua goes off to take care of the army, and Moses and Aaron climb to the top of the hill to appeal to God. Whenever there's a crisis that happens in our world, the first thing people do is to look for leadership, to look to those who are in charge for guidance. For example, when 9-11 happened and the chaos of that day was unfolding, it was so important for our country to be able to see the president at the end of the day go and travel to ground zero and to appeal to the nation so that we could stop panicking and start rolling up our sleeves and getting ready for what was ahead. I think when Israel saw their leaders taking charge, they stopped panicking and they started doing what needed to be done. The Israelites may have seen Joshua, Moses, and Aaron take action, but through those three people, they undoubtedly saw God at work. The same God who, in fact, had just delivered them from Egypt. That wasn't that long ago. That was fresh in their minds. The same God who had just provided for them in the desert. They knew that as exposed as they were, the realization came in that they were not lacking shelter in their life. God would be that shelter. God would surround them with his wings and protect them. And when you undergo a trial in your life, I want to encourage you to look for the leaders that God has put into your life so that you can look for for guidance and for counsel. They're always there. Mr. Rogers would always say that. In a crisis opportunity, look for the helpers. Look for the leaders because those are the people that other people will follow. God has put leaders into your life. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your church leaders, your elders. But we're here for you. And through, through those people, God is working to actively sustain you in the middle of crisis. So as Joshua leads his hand-picked men into battle here, Moses climbs to the top of the hill and then takes that staff and he holds it up. Now that might be tempting to think upon a first reading, if you know anything about the story of Moses, that Moses is getting ready to perform a miracle. Because that staff that he often holds has been used in many miracles. You remember, he's, he's thrown it down and it turned into a snake and he picks it back up to show to press uh, Pharaoh there. He's used that same staff to strike the waters and part the waters of the Red Sea. 
Jews asked staff to strike a stone and bring forth water. But here, Moses isn't performing a miracle with that staff. Instead, what he's doing is adopting a posture of prayer. A posture of prayer. Now, there's a lot of postures of prayer that we assume. I don't know if you've ever prayed uh, completely prostrate, lying completely down on the ground, but that's an uh, posture of prayer. Some of us will kneel when we pray. Some of us will hold our hands like this. But I think the most intimate, the most exposed posture of prayer that we can have is one where we hold our hands to God. It's, an, it's, a, it's a sign of supplication. In fact, the only other time I see somebody doing this is when it's a little kid and they come up to you and they do that. And what is a little kid trying to communicate to you when they're doing that? They're saying, I want something from you, right? I'm too small for the thing I want. Maybe I want to be lifted up. Maybe I want a hug. Maybe I just want to feel secure. Maybe I want to see what's on the counter so I can grab it. Whatever, whatever it is. It's, it's somebody holding their, their arms up and saying, I'm not big enough on my own for what I need. I'm not tall or strong enough. I can't do this without your help, so please help me. And that's what Moses is doing here. And as prayer is a two-way street, prayer is always a two-way street, as Moses is lifting up a petition on behalf of the people, God is sending down his answer to prayer through power. So as long as Moses maintains his posture of prayer, the good guys are winning. The Israelites are winning the war against Amalek. Things go well for the Israelites. Now, there are a lot of things that prayer is not. Prayer is not wasted words to an imaginary deity that we've just made up in our heads. It makes us feel better to do it. Prayer is not our attempt to convince God or change his mind. God has a will. It will not be changed no matter how well you speak to him, no matter how emotional you are to him. That's not how prayer works. Remember, we don't pray to change God's mind. We pray for God to change our mind. Prayer isn't a balm to make us feel better when we're powerless and can't do anything else. Prayer is, however, righteous. On behalf of a righteous person, prayer is powerful and effective. James promises us that. Prayer is not weak nothingness. The world may laugh at us today and say, oh, man, you people are always sending your thoughts and prayers whenever there's a calamity in the world. I turn around and say, you know what the Bible says? Prayer is powerful and effective. And when I can't do something, I know my God can do something. And so, yes, I'm going to pray to him because I want him to act in this situation. When you are in crisis in your life, the very first thing you should do, not the last thing, the first thing you should do is adopt a posture of prayer and say, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. Reach up to God first. Be honest with him. Ask for his will to be done in that situation. And as long as you're praying up, God is always faithful to send his answer back down. So let me ask you right now, how long could you hold your arms above your head? Have you ever tried it? You, you might have. We, my son's doing it right now. We did it. You don't have to. We did it in youth group once back in the day. We're, ha- we're doing a fear factor youth group. So one day I said, okay, um, raise your arms up. Let's see who could be the last person standing. The last teenager, even adults, we had them do this too. Who can keep their arms up the longest? And for the first couple of minutes, everybody's all cocky, like, yeah, this is easy. This is the easiest thing I've ever done, you know? 
But over about you know, five, ten minutes go by, and we're all talking. We're, we're doing a lesson while we're doing this um, and smelling each other's wonderful aromas. Over the course of five or ten minutes, you saw people start, start to falter. You start, start seeing their faces change from, you know, cocky to, mm, oh, this is My arm's starting to get sore. So, you know, some arms started dropping. After ten minutes, people said, this isn't worth it. I'm not doing this, Pastor Justin. We had a couple teenagers last the half hour mark. And at the half an hour mark, you saw how their arms were just trembling. And then I asked them, like, what do your arms feel like? They're either sore or numb or both. And they're just like, this is so incredibly hard. And I tell you that because when we look at Moses here, I think as we're quickly reading it, we, we might be tempted to think, man, the guy's a weakling. First of all, he's 80 years old. Let's not judge him too quickly. And two, holding up not just your arms but a heavy staff above your head takes a bit of effort. And so at first, Moses is doing really well here. He's got the weight of the nation like almost literally on his shoulders. He needs to keep his arms up. And so for a while, he's strong. He doesn't want to break that posture of prayer. But in verse 12 we here, we see that no matter how strong his, his will is, his determination to keep his arms up, he starts to falter and his arms fall. And the second that happens, the tide of battle switches. And the Amalekites start gaining the upper hand. And if it was just up to Moses, if Moses was only by himself, I think this story would have gone a lot differently, that they, the Amalekites would have won the day. But he wasn't alone, was he? Who goes up there with him? Aaron and Hur. Good name, Hur. And these two men, they, they see Moses faltering. They see his arms starting to shake. And so they sit him on a rock. And one man takes one arm and does this, and holds it up, and the other man takes the other arm and holds it up, and they prop him up. And a battle goes on all day long, and these two men are adding their strength to Moses so that he can maintain without faltering that posture of prayer for the entire day to remain resolute and firm. There's a Peanuts comic strip they always like where Lucy comes into the room. You know, Lucy is the brother Linus, and sees Linus watching TV and says, hey, change the channel. I want to watch my favorite show. And Linus says, how are you going to make me? And Lucy says, well, these five fingers right here, alone, they're nothing. But when I curl them into a single combined unit, they'll make you change that channel. And so Linus gets up and changes that channel. And then he looks at his own hands. He says, why can't you guys get together like that? Fortunately, we're organized in a way that Linus's figures weren't. Christians are organized. We're actually given this wonderful gift of a built-in support system into the body of Christ. We're not supposed to pummel each other, by the way. But rather, we're this support network that 1 Corinthians 12 talks about when God shares his design for the body of Christ, saying that every part of the church should have equal concern for one another. We're there to help each other get through these crises. Get through life strong and finish our race firm and resolute. The hero of this account, by the way, here's a spoiler, is not Moses. I think it's really important for us to see that Moses, no matter how much we we look up to him as a figure in the Bible, is not perfect. Moses has his weaknesses. And this is one of them. He's not physically the strongest guy in the room. But through the support of others by the grace of God, he is able to prevail in this moment. 
Likewise, another spoiler, we're not the heroes of the faith. We're not. We are the body of the one who is the hero. And we're given to each other for support, concern, and love. We're a family. And that's something we're going to be really hammering home over the next couple of years as we try to rebuild as a church, as we we form a new identity as Knox. Not to be individual little islands that maybe know of each other. We need to know each other. We need to be there for each other. We need to not tear down each other, but to constantly be encouraging each other. Be saying, when we say to each other, how are you doing, really mean it. And we need to hear back when somebody's saying, I'm just going through a really rough time right now. Can I sit down with you and pray with you? Follow up with those people. Love them. Encourage them. That's why Jesus has given us to each other. Sometimes we're the ones holding other people up, but sometimes we're the ones who need to be held up. And when that day comes, come to us. Don't keep that pain to yourself. Don't keep that struggle to yourself. Come to your family because God gave you this family for your support. So going on in this account in Exodus, finally the day's won. It was a really bloody, a very ugly fight in which the Amalekites were repelled, but they weren't destroyed. The actual translation here is that Joshua discomforted the enemy. That's the, that's the real word here. Which suggests kind of like enough of a victory to, to survive the day and, and maybe make the enemy think twice about coming back. But sooner or later, the enemy still survives, and there's going to be a reckoning. In fact, the Amalekites would be back to attack Israel again and again. Numbers chapter 24 said that this tribe was the first among all of the heathen nations that arrayed themselves against Israel. Psalm 83 noted that Israel had this persistent problem with the Amalekites again and again. And isn't that just how it is sometimes? That sometimes you don't get that overwhelming victory over that struggle you have in your life. Sometimes you just get enough victory to survive the day, to go another day, to just just eke through what's going on and to fight again another day. But the discomfort Joshua gives his enemy isn't the end of this story, is it? Instead, God makes this pronouncement and a judgment upon the nation that dared attack his chosen people, and defy the Lord Almighty. And God says to Moses, he says, write this down. Be sure to tell Joshua this, because I am going to completely blot out the Amalekites. And here we see the true hero of the account emerge. It's not the Israelites. It's not Moses. It's not Aaron. It's not her. It's God. And God says that you guys attained a partial victory, even with my help, but I will now wage a generational war And at the end of that war, this tribal nation will be completely obliterated because they dared to defy me. And in in 1 Samuel 15, that's exactly what happens. God, through the work of King Saul, finally, once and for all, puts an end to the Amalekites. And Moses responds to this declaration by God by constructing an altar that he calls, Jehovah is my banner. What Moses is doing here is, affirming that the ultimate victory is the Lord's and the Lord's alone. He's restating his allegiance to the one under whose banner Moses walks. Above all of Israel's problems, both internal and external, Jehovah is its banner, its identity, and its shelter. And as great as this claim of future victory is, 
we see an even greater as we talked about earlier in the book of John, when Jesus makes the claim, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Not just overcome the Amalekites, not just overcome the disease you're going through right now, or the relational problem, or your problem with finances, or your struggle with sin. Not just one problem. I have overcome the entire world, Jesus said. There's either, he's either lying through his teeth, or he's making the most audacious claim that should make us worship him. The ultimate victory of God may be in our future, but we can be assured right now of its coming. The same way that Moses and Joshua were assured that this nation that just attacked them, just killed many of their people, just caused a lot of fear and anxiety in them, one day that nation would be defeated. We can be assured in the same way that we will have an ultimate victory in our life. So how are we sustained in our life? We are sustained through the leadership that God provides for us, the prayer that he responds to, the people he sends to support us, and this promise of ultimate victory. This is how a Christian is sustained to fight the good fight of faith. And these aren't ineffectual gifts. These aren't just empty words that I'm giving to you, but rather they're part of an arsenal that 1 Corinthians 10 says, an arsenal has the divine power to demolish strongholds. This is awesome. So take heart today. Take heart. You don't fight and struggle alone in your life, unsupported, without any hope of victory. On the contrary, God's already won it for you. You just have to trust in him to see you through. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this account, we can, we can praise you for something you've done centuries ago. Lord, how you sustained your people, how you protected them and provided for them. And not just provided for their immediate survival, but also their long-term success. Lord, you know our struggles right now. You know what's going on in our hearts right now, in our lives. And maybe there's a struggle that just seems too big for us. Maybe we're just in despair, falling into depression because we don't even know how to tackle it. Lord, please be there for us. Please help us understand these promises, these truths in the Bible that show that you have already provided ways to sustain us, that we can pick ourselves up with your help and fight and fight and fight until you win the day for us. Lord, we just pray for all of these people. Pray on behalf of the struggles that we're going through, the way that we're attacked. It might not always seem fair, but Lord, we know that you have overcome the world and that when we are with you, we have overcome the world with you. Lord, we praise you for that in your name. Now receive the benediction. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.